Okay, so I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I've learned that there are different types of leadership. Uh, you could probably learn this without being a pastor, but there are different types of leadership. So one type of leadership is kind of the compulsive, uh, compulsion mandatory type of leadership, like telling someone you have to do this and forcing it on them and requiring it. There's also leading by example. Uh, so there's not necessarily a communication of an idea. It's kind of like people watch your example and they follow that. Uh, leading by example is real, whether you like it or not. And you can lead well by example or you can lead poorly by example. Uh, leading by example is not an optional thing. I'm telling you it happens. So you sometimes might even know, you might not even know that you're leading poorly by example until you see it either in your kids or your people that you manage at work or you know, whoever is in your life, you start to see that. But there's a, another type of leadership that I would call invitational leadership. And it's a way to lead people, guide people, have influence but it's not mandatory. It's not necessarily by example, although there might be an exemplary element to it, but you invite people into something and then they have to make a decision whether they're gonna to respond to that. So I learned this kind of the hard way when I was a young pastor. I was 24 years old uh, and I was a youth pastor mostly. I mostly led our youth ministry at a previous church and we had about 40 teenagers in that youth ministry. And uh, every quarter or so, every 90 days, I would have a parents' meeting, and I would invite the parents to come, and they could bring their teenagers, and I wanted to know, how can we serve you? How are things going? Are your kids learning anything? That kind of stuff. And we'd have a conversation, and it was always really helpful, because I would find out what's working and what's not working, and they were always more likely to give us help or money after that. So that was helpful. But it was always an invitation. It was never required. Here's this meeting. Come if you would like. So about two years into that, we were having some issues with our teenagers, and I was getting so frustrated that I started a mandatory Sunday school class for parents. And I was 24 years old, and I had no kids, and I was forcing them to come to a Sunday school class on parenting. You, you see how this could be a problem? Well, in my... 24-year-old wisdom, I didn't see the issue there. Uh, I think they probably knew that I was teeing up to let them have it a little bit. And now that I am a parent, <laughs> I realize how ridiculous that sounds uh, for me to try to do that. But anyway, so I, when I would invite them to parents' meetings, I'd get like 25 adults. But when I made them come to a Sunday school class, I got two, two adults. Now I was like, I know you can all come, because you come to the other meetings, and it's on a Sunday. I know you're at church. Uh, so that went down in history as the worst Sunday school class that we ever had at that church. It lasted one week. I canceled it after that. I realized the error of my ways relatively quickly, and I was like, yeah, no one wants to hear me talk about parenting. Uh, my kids still don't want to hear me talk about parenting. So I, I learned something there that the compulsory mandatory forcing a person to do something doesn't always work as well as simply inviting people. Because when you invite people, you are requiring that they engage their own will. They have to make a decision. They have to make a choice. And while in our heads it might make sense that if we make it mandatory, more people will participate, the reality is that's not the case, probably. Even if you get more people in attendance, their heart may not be in it. And wouldn't you rather have 10 people whose hearts are in it than 20 people who are kind of like this, right? So leading by invitation is a type of leadership that anyone that's in leadership should learn. How do you invite people in a way that is compelling and uh, winsome and where people feel comfortable but you're not forcing or demanding or commanding. Now, when it comes to Jesus, Jesus has the right to operate in all three of those types of leadership. Jesus led by example. 
Jesus has the right to command and require and mandate things. He, he never gave up that right, and he still has that right. So there can be times where Jesus just puts his finger in his, your chest and says, do it. And like, you have to or else he's going to fry you, right? So you got to do it. But there are also times that Jesus led by invitation. Think of when he called the disciples to follow him. He went around to you know, the fishing boats and the tax collector booth, and he said, come and follow me. Uh, and it, it really rings like an invitation. Uh, it sounds like he's saying, here's an opportunity, here's an invitation into relationship and discipleship. Come and follow me, come and learn from me. And they all responded to Jesus' invitation to follow him. Now, we know that some responded better than others. Judas, obviously, didn't respond with his whole heart, but he responded initially to that invitation. So Jesus led by leadership. Uh, led by leadership, he led by invitation. Even uh, in Revelation, it says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And anyone who lets him in, he will come in and sup. Sup, Jesus. He will come in and have supper. You can tell Jesus is from a small town because he calls dinner supper. He's from western Pennsylvania, <laughs> west of Harrisburg somewhere. So he will come in and have dinner with them. He will sup with them. Now, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. The same Jesus who, after he was resurrected, was walking through walls and rolling away stones is knocking on the door. Could he just walk straight in? Yeah. Could he bust the door down and be like, sup? Give me, give me my plate. He could. He absolutely could. He has the right and the power. He has the authority and the power to do that. But he chooses instead to knock on the door, which is a form of invitation. And he's waiting. In, in, this is in Revelation. I mean, this is not in the Gospels. This is in Revelation. For the door to be opened through an act of decision by the person on the other side of the door. Does that make sense? So there are times in Jesus' ministry where he led through invitation. And as I read the Beatitudes, which is the first portion of the Sermon on the Mount, as I read these eight Beatitudes, and as you read them, they have the ring of an invitation. They sound like an invitation. Now, while the word invitation is never used in the Beatitudes, the way he speaks, the way he's addressing people, it sounds like he's calling them into a deeper relationship with him and a totally different way of living rather than pushing them and thrusting them. He's inviting them into this. Now, again, I want to make this perfectly clear. There are times when Jesus straightforward commands things. And he can do that, and we shouldn't resist it when he does that. But there are other times when he invites, I think this, the Beatitudes, the first 12, chapter, 12 verses of Matthew 5, are an invitation. So, I want to look at these uh, invitations really quickly. We looked at four of these last week. I'm going to read the entire passage uh, from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Beatitudes. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, those are the Beatitudes, that's the word of the Lord. Last week we looked at the first four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the gentle, and blessed are those who hunger. Today we're going to look at the final four Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are the persecuted. So let's start with the merciful. In verse 7 it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive 
mercy. So what does mercy mean exactly? Mercy is essentially helping the afflicted or comforting the afflicted. Uh, Sometimes you comfort the afflicted by afflicting the comfortable. Mercy has two components to it. The two components of mercy are basically, first, you want to feel the pain that another person is feeling. You have to be able to either empathize or sympathize or commiserate with another person. So if they're feeling some pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain, you want to be able to connect with that in some way, join them in the feeling of that pain. So that's component number one of mercy. Component number two of mercy is that you then are taking some sort of action to minister to or alleviate that pain. If you just join them in the pain but don't do anything about it, you're not yet engaging in mercy. Mercy always has an active part to it where you're doing something to help. Does that make sense? Now, sometimes mercy is as simple as a hand on the shoulder. That Maybe that's the action. Sometimes mercy is going so far as taking a big, grand action or step to alleviate someone else's suffering. But mercy always has a sympathetic element and then an action element. I want to show you really quickly uh, three explanations of mercy. Uh, The first is to be merciful is not only to feel others' pains and problems, but also to extend relief. So again, there, there you go, those two components. You're feeling the pain of others, but also extending relief. Sympathy is followed by good deeds. Uh, mer- sorry, mercy is defined as sympathy followed by good deeds. So sympathy means to suffer alongside of someone. Uh, that's literally what the word means etymologically. It's your pathos is suffering, so that's where the pathy part comes from. You're suffering alongside of someone. And then mercy is grace in action. All three of those explanations have those two components. One is to feel what they're feeling, and then the second is to take some sort of action to help minister to them so that you can alleviate uh, what they're going through. Now, there are forms of what I call unsanctified mercy. There are ways that we can try to show mercy to people that really aren't merciful because we're either not connecting with their emotions or we're not actually helping them. So one form of unsanctified mercy would be enabling people. When you enable, oh, you you all know what I'm talking about there, okay. When you enable a person to stay in their junk, I'm not talking about passively letting them stay in their junk, I'm talking about like fueling the fire. Here's some money to go make your bad decision, or here, you know, like I'll drive you there. That's enabling. You can't control other people, so don't control other people. But you also shouldn't be enabling because enabling is not actually mercy. It's what I would call unsanctified mercy. A second form of unsanctified mercy is pity. No one really, yeah, no one really wants pity, but some people do want pity, right? But they probably don't know it's pity. I mean, I've been invited to some pity parties. I've thrown some good pity parties. In my day, right? Oh, okay, now you know, okay. But generally, aside from the uh, repeat pity party hoster, the average person does not want your pity, right? They don't want you to look down on them because pity kind of is this condescending thing. No one really wants your pity. So pity and enabling are not actual mercy. They are unsanctified mercy. So here's what I want to challenge us to. When you're sympathizing with a person who's going through a hard time, uh, and like it's, they always, well, often people will describe, I feel like I'm in a pit, and I'm in the muck and the mire. And you get in the muck and the mire with them, right? You're, they're snotting, and you got their snot on you, and like it's just, they're crying, and you're crying. Listen, the psalmist said that God got in the muck of the mire and pulled them out of the muck and the mire. You don't want to just stay in the muck of the mire like, Now I'm in the muck with you. That's not mercy. Mercy is I'm going to get in the muck with you and we're going to get out of this if you want to get out of this. And then if you're like me, I'm like, well, I'm getting out. (laughs) I'm not going to stay here. 
if you would like to come, let's get out of here together. But I'm not going to stay in the muck. So mercy does something to help alleviate the suffering of other people. And not all mercy is sanctified mercy. There is such a thing as unsanctified mercy. Now, really quickly, if I could make a commercial for some of the ministries that we offer here at Truvine. If you are a mercy person, see, mercy is one of the attributes of God that there's actually, it's actually connected to a spiritual gift. There's a spiritual gift of mercy where some people are so effective in demonstrating mercy that God empowers it and they have great success and bear a lot of fruit through showing mercy. So we have two ministries here at Truvine that are very mercy-oriented. The first is our food pantry that we have in the basement. Man, we are a small church with a small building, and our food pantry is small, but has a big impact. And we are on pace this year to distribute more food than we've ever distributed. We are distributing almost 1,000 pounds a month to about 150 different people. It's not the same two or three people coming every week taking 100 pounds. It's a wide group of people for, that need food for a variety of reasons, and we're able to serve them in that way. So I want to invite you, if that's, if mercy is a kind of thing that God has gifted you in, maybe you want to volunteer in our food pantry. And we, our volunteers do an incredible job. That whole thing is run by volunteers. Uh, if you're interested in serving in the food pantry, you can speak with Becky Davis, who happens to be sitting right back. Can you raise your hand real quick, Becky? There's Becky. Okay. You can speak to Becky or yeah, Linda and Cheryl and uh, anyone else that serves in the food pantry, raise your hand. Or, oh, Debbie, yeah, okay. Right, higher, 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 higher. Okay, you can talk to any of these folks, all right? And they'll sign you up. And uh, they'll sign you up. Second thing you can do to serve in the area of mercy is, is serving the homeless. And recently our church has been working with Danielle and some others. Danielle, raise your hand real quick. Okay to take food to the homeless. This is essentially the Uber Eats of our food ministry, uh, where we go down to Kensington and Allegheny, is that right? And distribute food to people there on site. And we're doing that about twice a month. There was just a distribution yesterday. So if you're interested in doing that and you want to go do some hands-on ministry, you can speak with Danielle, and we're going to be sharing a little bit more information about that in the coming weeks. But that right there are two really practical ways that you can demonstrate mercy to people that need a little mercy. Uh, now, Jesus says about mercy, oh, i got to back up. Jesus says about mercy, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In verse 7, if you can see that, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. So let me tell you what this is not. This is not karma. You cannot find karma in the Bible. Karma is this kind of system where this impersonal, universal laws of balance kind of play itself out where you're rewarded or upgraded for good behavior and you're demoted or punished for bad behavior and you build up points. And people only apply karma selectively, I've noticed. You know, like when something bad... So if person A stomps on person B, person B is like, karma's going to get you, person A. And I'm always like, how do you know karma's not getting you right now, person B? Karma's too legalistic for me. I need grace. I need mercy. So, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, is not karma, because it's not impersonal. There's an actual personal God who is just, and fair, and righteous. And the way mercy works in the kingdom is cyclical. Every one of us enter into this cycle when we receive mercy from God through Jesus. When we realize we are, have earned punishment and wrath, but through Jesus we receive mercy. Now because we've received mercy, we can give mercy to other people. Does that make sense? And then when we give mercy to other people, God makes sure that when we need mercy, it's provided for us in some way, shape, or form. There, there is, you know, it, it is necessary for the church of Jesus to demonstrate mercy in the world because if the church of Jesus stops demonstrating mercy, we're going to run out of mercy very quick. I mean, the police department, <laughs> mercy's not their prerogative, right? Is mercy the prerogative of the government? 
Okay, yeah, that was funny, right? You work for the government. Uh, uh, you know, like, it, it's only really, I mean, I don't even know that hospitals, some, you know, depending on the hospital and the medical field, but it's the prerogative of the church to be a purveyor or provider of mercy in the world, okay? So if, if we don't show it, it's going to be really hard to find. And if a whole generation of people goes by that hasn't experienced much mercy, they're not going to show mercy to the next generation. So uh, we want to make sure that we are flooding the earth with mercy. Jesus demonstrated mercy when he healed the sick. I mean, the people that he touched and healed to restore their health, that's a demonstration of mercy. Every time he cast out a demon, that was an act of mercy. Every time he fed a hungry person, when he protected people that were caught in sin. Remember the woman who committed adultery that was caught in sin? And he saved her life. Now, he also said to her, you need to leave your life of sin. And to one of the men that he healed, he said, I've healed you, go and sin no more so something worse doesn't happen to you. So Jesus wasn't tiptoeing around the relationship between sin and humanity, but he was protecting these people uh, and healing them as an act of mercy. Even on the cross, he made sure that when he was dying, his mother Mary would be taken care of by John. That is an act of mercy. All of those take action. So the, uh, the merciful will receive mercy. That's the first beatitude this morning. The second is the pure in heart. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A person that is pure in heart is free from corruption. They have no ulterior motives, meaning they're not doing something to get something back for themselves. Their motives are pure. And they are also transparent. Another way to say transparent would be authentic or genuine. So a person who is pure in heart has no ulterior motives. They're not trying to manipulate. They're not trying to use people. They are transparent. Their heart is not corrupt. Uh, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's implying, I think, that sometimes people are not pure in heart. Right? Sometimes our hearts are corrupt. Sometimes our hearts do have ulterior motives. Sometimes we're not authentic and genuine and transparent. Right? So... When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, I think he's saying, so sometimes people aren't pure in heart. And ultimately, purity of heart is something that is a gift from God. David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, create in me a pure heart. And every single one of us needs to come to that point at some point. We're like, Lord, my heart is not pure. You have to create in me a pure heart. That should be happening when a person comes to Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you didn't know the whole Bible when you came to Jesus, so you discovered this a little bit later. But the work of the Holy Spirit in your life will purify your motives. It will remove corruption. You'll be transformed. Your mind will be renewed. Your heart will be restored. And you'll be able to live a transparent, authentic, genuine life. And I think right now, our world is starving for people that are transparent. Our world is starving for integrity. And frankly, our culture keeps shooting itself in the foot by making examples of people who do not have integrity and then wondering why no one has integrity. Uh, we, we want transparency. We want people to be the same in public and in private. We want people's lives to be integrated so that you know their, their spiritual their spirituality, their finances, their sex life, their work life is not separate categories, but it's all one life where everything is integrated together and that's a life of integrity. That is pure in heart. It's a person who does something for the right motives, not the wrong motives. It's a person who serves without a desire to manipulate or control other people. And the pure in heart, the people that meet those qualifications, it says they shall see God, and it's not talking about see with your eyes, it's talking about see with your heart. They will know intimately God. It is really difficult for a person whose motives are impure, whose heart is corrupt, who, has, uh, who is not transparent to know God intimately. And it's also really difficult, if not impossible, for them to know other people intimately. 
Because if you're not transparent, if you're not authentic, if you're not pure in heart, what you are is a faker. You're an imposter. You're wearing a mask. And a person who's an imposter has too much guilt to draw near to God. Because you know that when you fake it, inside you know you're faking it. I don't, have you ever lived with like the weight of having to perform? Like, okay, we all do this. On a job interview, you always put your best foot forward, right? No one shows up to the job interview in their Bugs Bunny pajama pants, right? <laughs> or maybe they do. I don't know. I just recommend not. First date, you know, you, first date, you get a hair. If you're a guy, you get a haircut, put a little cologne on, shave, you know. If you're a lady, you maybe spiff yourself up. I don't know what ladies do, but, you know, but you, after a while, you feel like, I have to maintain this. What happens when they see the real me? You know, like, that's a lot of pressure. Now, I do think you should take a shower before a job interview and a first date. But I don't think you should live your spiritual life that way. I don't think you should, on Sunday when you arrive at church, oh, good morning, bless the Lord, too blessed to be stressed. Well, thankfully, most of you don't do that. You're, you immediately come in and be like, ah. <laughs> I kind of wish you would just <laughs> chill out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm laughing deep in my belly for this. Um, you, but the, the weight of putting on a show is too much to bear. So be authentic, be real, because when you're an imposter, when you wear a mask, not only is it hard for you to know God, it's hard for you to know other people. You don't get real. You know, you don't let your guard down. You don't take your mask off. You project, project, project the image that you want them to see of the perfect version of you. And the perfect version of you, and I'll say this to myself, is not the real version. You know, it's the prettied up, gussied up version. All right, so the pure in heart will know God intimately and as a, as a side benefit also can have intimacy with other human beings. Jesus demonstrated purity of heart when he avoided fame and popularity. You know, they wanted to make Jesus king way before they crucified him. And they wanted Jesus to be exalted, and they wanted Jesus to free them from Roman oppression, and, and Jesus avoided those moments. He actually somehow snuck away. You know, a lot of people would run to those moments. They've been waiting. When is my time for my 15 minutes of fame? And Jesus snuck out the back door when his 15 minutes of fame came. Because he was waiting for six hours of suffering, not 15 minutes of fame. Jesus demonstrated purity of heart when he did not defend himself, when he was being tried the night before he was crucified. And when he sacrificed for other people, he was demonstrating purity of heart because we see now what Jesus' motives are. His motives were not fame or power or popularity. His motives were us. <coughs> to glorify himself through redeeming us. In Hebrews it says, to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. When Jesus endured the cross, his motives were laid bare. He did it to glorify the Father by redeeming people from, our, from humankind. Uh, after the pure in heart, it says that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I don't know if there are many things that our world needs right now more than peacemakers. Um, 165 years before Jesus was born, and almost 200 years before Jesus said this, there was a revolt among the Jewish people. So the Jewish people were living, they were Jewish people living in their Jewish land, but they were under Roman rule. They were subjugated or oppressed by the Roman Empire, so they didn't get to totally live free as Jewish people. So about 200 years before Jesus said this, there was an uprising uh, by, well, if you're familiar with the Maccabees and the story of Hanukkah, that 
the group of people rebelled against the Roman government, and we had a brief period of time called the Hasmonean Dynasty, where this Jewish family led a revolt and kind of won for a while against Rome. Okay, So there was this violent war. Then, about 130 years after Jesus, there was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which was another bloody, violent Jewish revolt against Rome. So you have the Maccabean or Hasmonean Revolt about 200 years before the Sermon on the Mount, and then about 130 years later, you have this Bar Kokhba Revolt. Right in the middle of these violent revolts, you have Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers. One of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, which we would nowadays call like a fundamentalist militiaman or radical terrorist. And Jesus is saying, he, he was looking at this crowd of people, and he's saying to them, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Uh, now, there's a difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Peacekeeping prevents things from bubbling up. Keep everything cool. No drama here. Let's not get into it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, slow down. That's peacekeeping. I do it through humor. If I'm in a situation where it's getting a little too real, we're about to like get into some stuff, I'm like, oh, crack a joke and get out of here. You know, like um, some people do it by pretending everything is fine, but people try to keep the peace rather than making peace. And they just try to cover everything over, sweep it under the rug. Don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. It's too uncomfortable. That does not make any peace. It just keeps a false sense of peace without dealing with anything. So what a peacemaker, as Jesus referred to them, what a peacemaker does is they actually have to sometimes dig up the junk. Let it come to the surface so that real restoration and reconciliation can take place. So a peacemaker isn't concerned with keep it cool, keep it chill. A peacemaker is like, let's deal with this so that we can really have healing. Uh, so peacemakers are willing to get into the sometimes awkward and socially uncomfortable conversations and situations in order to really bring the shalom or peace of God into a situation. And I don't know if there's an area in our culture right now where this is more necessary than in the area of racial reconciliation. Um, I think there are people, perhaps their motives are, are, are good, but they would rather tamp that down. Oh, let's not talk about it. Why has it always got to be about this? And they want to just cover it over. That was... 250 years ago, let's not, it's over now. And that's peacekeeping, but it's not peacemaking. And we wonder why it keeps bubbling up every couple years, because we're not dealing with it. And what the church, what the world needs is Christians who are actual peacemakers, who are willing to oh, stick their neck out, get into those hard, dirty, challenging moments and conversations and actually sort things out repent, uh, apologize, forgive, so that there can be actual reconciliation and healing. Does that make sense? Yes. But as long as we try to cover it over and keep peace, we'll never make peace. Jesus said, peacemakers will be called sons of God. Peacemakers, people will see that and recognize this person's part of God's family. I think even the world... I mean, just really quickly, I mean, people acknowledge that Martin Luther King Jr. was being used of God. Even non-church people understood that. That there was a theological, spiritual element to what he was doing in the world. And so if we are effectively being peacemakers, people will be like, they're part of God's family. Even, even the world will be able to see that and acknowledge it. Jesus was a peacemaker when he reconciled man to God. I mean, talk about an area where reconciliation is necessary. You have mankind rejecting God and God preparing to pour out wrath on rebellious mankind. 
And Jesus reconciles man to God because Jesus was a peacemaker. When Jesus started the church, he actually was founding a diverse family of God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28 to a bunch of Jewish disciples, he said to them, go and make disciples of all nations. Which is his way of saying, like, go, it's going to be diverse. There's going to be different groups. Make disciples of all of them. And it took them 10 years to get to that, by the way. Uh, even after Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, they did not even leave the town of Jerusalem to do that. Uh, finally, it took persecution to get them to do that. Uh, finally, Jesus was a peacemaker when he taught on forgiveness and taught us to forgive. Uh, the fourth and final beatitude I want to look at today is blessed are the persecuted, and Jesus spent more time on this one than any of the other beatitudes. I'm just going to read it again. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, not all suffering is persecution. <laughs> Jesus defines persecution in this passage as uh, suffering at the hands of another person due to righteous behavior or identification with him. That's persecution. Uh, I think this is important for us to understand because sometimes we go through bad days and rough circumstances and we might misidentify it as persecution when it's really not persecution. It, you know, like, oh, I'm really suffering a lot of persecution at work. Oh, yeah? What's going on? Yeah, my boss ripped me up because I uh, wrecked the company car. Well, that's not persecution. You know, like, that's the consequences for your action. That's not persecution, you know? So, really quickly, I want to spend a couple minutes on this. You're going to go through some tough stuff in your life. You have to diagnose correctly what you're going through in that moment. Because you might be going through, simply, the consequences of your actions. You made a bad decision, and now you're dealing with the results of that. that it could be that. It could be spiritual warfare. Maybe Satan or, and his demons are out to get you, and that's a real thing, and maybe that's what's going on. Maybe God is pruning you so that you bear more fruit. Maybe he's disciplining you because you're his son or his daughter. Maybe... We live in a fallen world, and bad stuff just happens sometimes. That could be it. Or maybe you're being persecuted. If you misdiagnose what you're experiencing, you will react the wrong way. So, for instance, if God is pruning you because he's preparing you to bear more fruit, this is how he talks about it in John 15, if God's kind of chipping away at your life cutting away the useless things so that he can use you more, and you think that that is spiritual warfare, and you say, I rebuke the attack of the enemy, it's not going to work. And then you're going to be like, oh, Satan won't stop, and it's not Satan, it's God. Right? See, if you knew it was God, it would be easier for you to submit to it. Right? But when you think it's Satan, you resist it. All right, so persecution is distinct from trial. It's distinct from tribulations. It's not the same as consequences for your actions. It's not the same as spiritual warfare. Um, persecution is when you suffer at the hands of another person because of either righteous living or identification with Jesus. Righteous living, you would think people would support you in that, but it actually provokes people to dislike you sometimes. There's a, I mean, if righteous living made friends, Jesus would not have been crucified, right? All the prophets would not have been killed. But sometimes righteous living actually is holding up a mirror to people, and they're like, they don't like what they see, so they break the mirror, which is you, which is the righteous person, you know? Um, when at your workplace, everyone is dishonest and cheats and comes in late and leaves early and takes stuff from the workplace and you're the one person that won't do it, they're not going to like you for that. They're going to invite you into it. 
Or they're going, oh, you're, you're not some holy roller. You're not no better than me. It's like, I'm not, I know I'm not better than you. Uh, I'm just not going to participate in this. So actually, righteous living has a stigma attached to it. And when you are willing to bear that stigma, you are willing to be persecuted. Uh, also, First, uh, 2 Timothy 3 tells us very directly, everyone that wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, prepare. So, I'm not encouraging you to go looking for persecution. <laughs> don't go trying to find it, but when it comes, don't run from it. Jesus actually told his disciples to rejoice. And I think that, that's the bottom line for us, is when persecution comes, are you going to grumble the whole time, or are you going to rejoice that Jesus counted you worthy to be persecuted. Uh, we barely experience persecution in America. I think many other Christians and other nations wish they had our kind of persecution. Because you know what persecution in America sounds like today? Someone on TV made fun of Christians. That's barely persecution. Maybe there's some legal stuff. You know, there's, there, there is persecution in America, but it's pretty soft so far. And I'm not saying we should roll over. I'm saying we should rejoice and not grumble. So a couple examples really quick. Uh, the BBC just Friday released an article uh, saying that Christians are the most persecuted group in the entire world. Christians, now, that's hard to believe in America because in America that's not the case. But worldwide, there is no group that experiences more persecution than Christians. In Iraq, 10 or 15 years ago, there were 1.5 million Christians. Now there are 120,000 Christians, which means over 90% of the Christians in Iraq have either been killed or displaced out of their home. Uh, there are places in Iran and Afghanistan where Christians are being either uh, systematically eliminated or moved out of where they live so that they can no longer live there. A couple years ago, I got to go to Cuba with a ministry called the College of Prayer. And Cuba, which is a communist government, it is, you're allowed to be a Christian, but you're not allowed to share the gospel. And the woman that brought our team to Cuba after we left was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered for being a Christian. Now, that wasn't because our team went, it was because of her influence in the community. She was a very well-known believer, and uh, she experienced the ultimate persecution and gave her life for Jesus, serving Jesus in her community. So I hear stories of, like, the, you know, we just heard about two weeks ago about these bombings in Sri Lanka. A couple churches and a couple hotels, several hundred Christians. I mean, they waited till Christians were gathered, went in and blew up churches. Um, a couple hundred Christians killed, a couple hundred other people killed. Uh, the same week that that happened in Sri Lanka, a megachurch in China was demolished. In China, uh, you're allowed to be a Christian, but you have to register every, all the church activities with the government. So if you don't register something with the government, it's considered illegal. So there was a church of 50,000 people in China, and something they did wasn't registered with the government, and the government bulldozed their building. 50,000 people all of a sudden don't have a place to meet. That's persecution. Getting made fun of on TV, that's persecution, but it's bearable persecution. But what the church is experiencing in other parts of the world is real, and what the church has experienced in other parts of history is real. Here's an example. In the first and second century in Rome, they hated Christians so much. First of all, there were just rumors about Christians everywhere, that they were incestuous because they loved their brothers and sisters, that they were cannibals because they had to eat the body and drink the blood of their founder, right? Uh, ironically, they actually thought most Christians were atheists because the Romans and the Greeks had so many gods. They, you know, they would ask a Christian, do you worship Zeus? No. Do you worship uh, Fortuna? No. Do you worship Alcepius? No. They'd go through the list, and it's like, I guess you're an atheist. Well, they weren't atheists. 
They worship Jesus. They just, out of a thousand gods, they rejected 999. And they, so they were misunderstood. This is how Christians were understood in the first century. Atheists who ate this flesh of children and slept with their siblings. So be not surprised when you're called names, when people say things against you. Also, this is how they would persecute Christians in the first and second century in Rome. You probably know this if you know very little about Roman history, if you've ever saw the movie Gladiator or Ben-Hur or something like that, right? Or, uh, Mike, you were live in Ben-Hur, weren't you? Sorry, Chico's not here. I had to pick someone to pick on. So, um, they, would, they would gather up Christians. They would, they would catch, hear rumors, this person's a Christian, this person's a Christian. And they would gather these people and they would say, you have an opportunity to offer incense to our gods. If you offer incense to our gods, we'll let you go free. But if you won't offer incense to our gods, you're going into the Colosseum to fight a lion or some other beast or some wolf, something like that. So the Christians, of course, would not offer the incense to the Roman and Greek gods, and so they'd be sent into the Colosseum. Now, the Christians weren't the only people getting persecuted. They were persecuting uh, other religions, Druids, pagans, you know, all sorts of people. So when the Druids were taken in to be uh, fed to lions, essentially, the Druids would just scream and cry and shriek and they would curse the crowds and they would call down like their little their spells and stuff like that and the people would just laugh and cheer and the druids would just go nuts then they would bring the christians in and the christians they brought them in in groups the christians would just huddle together and they would never fight back they knew that to die for jesus was an honor and to face persecution was a privilege and an honor. So what they would do is, first, they would bring entire families in. So if they brought 30 Christians in, maybe seven or eight of them are children. And the adults would get on the outside of the group, and they'd put the kids in the middle. And the Romans would not feed these lions and these wolves so that when they got there, they were... They didn't even really want to attack human beings, but they're starving, so they would. And so these lions would prowl around, and they would just pick one Christian off at a time. And they would crunch their bones and eat them in front of the whole crowd. The Christians never fought back. They went with dignity. They actually made arrangements. The, the families would make an agreement beforehand because they did not think it was right for their kids to suffer. And this is, it's, it's morbid, but it's real. The parents would actually make deals with other parents. If you break my kid's neck before a lion gets them, I'll break your kid's neck before a lion gets them so we don't have to watch our kids suffer. And so as the crowd, as the little group of Christians got smaller and smaller, it became time to then, this dad makes eye contact with that dad. And because no parent wants to do that to their kid, right? So they switch kids, snap their neck, so that the kids die quickly, painlessly, so that they're not eaten alive by lions. When I learn about these things, hear about these things, it really makes me seriously consider what am I willing to endure for Jesus? And what if it costs my family? Not just me, my family. This is the history of the church. In some parts of the world, it's the present of the church. And it's going to be the future of the church someday. Now, what's crazy about what happened in Rome? You know what happened in Rome? People watched the Druids and the other people die screaming and shouting and calling down curses. People didn't convert to Druidism. They watched the Christians die with dignity. Within 200 years, well, with less than 150 years of these acts, Rome was shifting to where so many people were becoming Christians, they almost couldn't persecute them anymore because they would have had to kill so many people. And in the 4th century, 
Christianity actually became the official religion of Rome. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for that. I think anytime Christianity becomes the official religion of anything, it gets screwed up. But that is the power of the testimony and the witness of those that were willing to be persecuted. And they did it without complaining, without grumbling. They rejoiced. They did it voluntarily. And it totally impacted the culture that they lived in. Uh, Complaining, grumbling Christians don't impact culture. Joyful, long-suffering, patient, loving Christians are what impacts the culture. All right? So, if we are going to offer our entire bodies and lives for Jesus, if we're going to be willing to go through persecution for Jesus, it is helpful to us to be reminded of what Jesus endured for us. You know that Jesus died on the cross. You know that he suffered for six hours in agony while he was crucified. We just covered a lot of this on Good Friday and Easter. But before he was crucified, he actually instituted a meal for his disciples that we call communion so that they would never forget his body being broken and his blood being poured out. This morning we are going to observe communion. And the way we do that here at True Vine, this is based on uh, 1 Corinthians 11, is that we do have bread. The bread represents Jesus' body, which which was broken for us. And we have grape juice, which represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. So here's basically how we do this here at True Vine. Uh, When we are ready to take communion, you're going to come up through the middle aisle, and then you're going to come up and dip the bread in the juice. We don't drink the juice, we dip the bread in the juice. And then you can exit either to the left or to the right. If you want to spend some time up the altar praying and worshiping, Please do that. You're welcome to do that. If you want to make it back to your seat, you can do that as well. This is a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And so we offer it to his disciples. If you are not a disciple of Jesus, but you're visiting us this morning, I'm really glad you're here. But this, I would just say, for your own benefit, it'd be good if you left this for those that are following Jesus actively and identify as disciples of his. Glenn is going to come up and um, lead us through our communion declaration and pray for us. The team is going to lead us in worship. Uh, Just take a moment as we're reading and praying to examine yourself. If there's something Jesus puts his finger on in your heart that maybe you need to confess, repent of, change, this is a, we get a monthly opportunity to recalibrate and correct. It's almost like a chiropractic adjustment for your spirit to put stuff back into alignment. When Glenn's done, you're welcome to come up. Go ahead, Glenn.